everyone, and welcome to the Tidewad Tech, episode 66, The State of Open Source, with Steve Hargadon, recorded September 26th, 2011. This week we're joined by uh, education luminary, Steve Hargadon, who's uh, uh, a man of varied interest and varied talents, and I'm really looking forward to the interview. I think he's going to be fascinating and entertaining, and so... Uh, we'll get to him in just a minute, but first uh, we have just our a few business things that we wanted to mention. And uh, sure. uh, first up is we haven't done a uh, listener spotlight show in quite a while, and that's because no listeners have said they wanted to be spotlighted. That's up to you well, to do that. So we we encourage you to do that. Yeah, I want to say that that was kind of a function of the summertime as well. You know, everybody's kind of out and doing their own thing. So uh, we we haven't had a listener spotlight in at least two or three months, I think. Uh, so certainly time. Uh, I have put a, uh, a forum topic out there on our forum, so check it out if you're interested in coming on the show. You've got something uh, interesting going on uh, at the district that you're at or uh, you know, not necessarily even a district. If you're uh, a tech out there that's doing something interesting uh, and in the tightwad vein, then pop onto that forum. That's, where, uh, that's the place to go and uh, offer yourself up, and I will be monitoring that, and uh, I will be contacting you. All right. I just wanted to introduce one quick little funny story. Uh, this past weekend, I was uh, away uh, in Austin, Texas for a training, and I was gone for three full days, about three and a half, really, when you put it all together with the driving time and everything. I had been away from home, away from my family, and I pull up uh, late Saturday night, pull up to the house, pull into the driveway, uh, start unloading the truck, getting my backpack and my bag and all that sort of stuff, and my precious little three-year-old daughter runs out with her arms in the air, running toward me, says, Daddy, 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 can I have your iPad? Yeah. She didn't care about me. Wasn't interested in hugging me and kissing me. Hadn't missed me. I had taken the iPad with me on my trip, and she had missed that. So the first thing she said to me is, can I have your iPad? Well, now, see, and that's exactly where educators would make that point, right, that that's what the iPad does. Those those iDevices do to the students, right? They just they want to get their hands on them and uh, and use them, right? She was having Phineas and Ferb withdrawals, is what it was. <laughs> yeah, which gets back to our point, right? That they're still consumption devices more than anything else, right? Uh, Sean, Facebook is for old people. What what's that about? Yeah, I had to throw that in there, and I, I actually threw that in on the fly as uh, you know as we were prepping for the show. But uh, it was something interesting that happened today, and it really caught me off guard. But um, uh, and uh, in response to something that we're going to talk about here shortly, uh, but I had my students kind of uh, uh, on a free day, and uh, and so I was telling them, you know, let, uh, you know. It, I just do something with the technology is essentially that was my instructions today. You know, get on the computer. I, you know, this is tech class. I want you doing something with the technology. So uh, one one kid says, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't you know, and I said, uh, well, uh, you know, don't you have like Facebook to check or something? You know, kind of jokingly. And he he in turn says Facebook's for old people. Now, this is a seventh grade uh, middle schooler. And. That, that completely blew me away. I thought that that's what, you know, they, their lives revolved around was Facebook. And to hear that come out of his mouth uh, made me wonder, you know, is, is this something that, you know, a direction we're moving in um, where, you know, it's already become kind of passe for these younger generations and that uh, maybe Facebook is, uh, has reached its peak? I don't know. Well, did you ask him what had supplanted Facebook? 
Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly what I asked, you know, so, so what's the new great thing? And he didn't have an answer for me. So I'm going to keep probing about this, uh, into this subject because, uh, again, that just blew me away. And, uh, it, you know, but a comment like that, you cannot take lightly. Uh, so, uh, I'm really interested to see if that's something that, you know, over the course of the next year or something, we see where these younger, the younger generations maybe start migrating away from Facebook to something else. Uh, and maybe Facebook will be the old person tool. Uh, I made the point to him uh, because he said something to the effect of, well, you know, Facebook was was made for old people. And I said, uh, well, no, actually, it was originally created for college students. Well, those are old people, too. Well, sure, to, to him they are. But, you know, that's still, you know, uh, a, a college student can't get more uh, young and progressive, right? I mean, uh, so it was it was a little interesting just to see his perspective in that comment and uh and maybe a little you know peering into the future uh, you know I- i'm gonna be watching it closely be sure well and i did want to point out that sean is not a bad teacher typically when he's in the classroom he's doing project-based learning but there's a very right. good reason he had a free day today and i'm gonna let him tell you what that is yeah, so uh, in the show notes, I put uh, I put this down as breaking up the dream team, uh, but uh, I have uh, accepted a position with a different school district, and I think uh, frequent listeners of our show uh, will remember hearing that uh, I have uh, quite a uh, a long haul to work each day. I drive two hours each way, uh, and so uh, that but was kind I'm of worth just, it, honestly. Y- Yes, and I and I love what I do and where I do it, and it was a really tough thing to do, but uh, it's certainly a change had to happen just to, for the uh, you know to maintain the happiness of my family. Uh, but uh, so that has actually happened. I accepted a position with another school district, and uh, so that's going to break up the dream team, uh, Mark. Both of us, uh, we've managed to accomplish a lot, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to toot our horn too much but boy our school district was really lucky to have (laughs) Uh, i'm getting a little teary-eyed here yeah yeah so uh i will be there by the time this comes out i'll have about a week and a half left and um uh, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, our show will be ending or anything like that we're going to continue on uh and i'll actually be able to draw on some new experiences where i'm at i'll be at a much larger school district and I think that's going to be uh, interesting to see how things are done differently in a in a large school district, and I'm sure it's not nearly as tightwad as what uh, what we do, but um, you know, I, I'm sure I have no doubt that I'll be able to draw on those new experiences and bring that content into the show. So uh, it should be interesting to see how how this uh, the next few months go. So having said that, with you know major uh, relocations going on and that sort of thing. There may be some disruptions to the show schedule, but I assure you, we're not going anywhere. We love doing this too much, and we're going to keep doing it. Uh, but you just need to know that uh, things are changing a little bit, and you may see some signs of that. Hopefully, you won't see any at all, but you might. Right, and I think that's that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, you you referenced the uh, scheduling, which is possibly going to be cha- more challenging, or you know, maybe not. Honestly, I'm going to have quite a bit more time. Uh, just in my daily schedule, you know, I'm knocking out three hours worth of driving. Uh, so, uh, hopefully that'll make things a little bit easier there. Uh, 
And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see just what kind of content I'm able to bring to the table uh, working in that different environment. And having said that, let's uh, let not waste any more time and get right on with uh, Mr. Steve Hargagat. Hark, Hamade, Hamade. Mr. Steve Hargadon. I am anxious to to, uh, hear from him. Steve, just tell us a little bit about you. Okay. So um, I I think of myself as having come into the uh, EdTech arena a little bit from from a backdoor standpoint. Uh, I sold computer equipment. um, Ended up talking about uh, open source software because we were installing Linux um, computer labs in schools that kind of morphed into talking about Web 2.0 and um, in about four and a half years ago I started Classroom 2.0 which was a social network for educators and I knew about the Ning platform because I had interviewed both Jan Ben King and Mark Andreessen who were the co-founders of Ning and of course the connection with Mark is the um, uh, Netscape was the original web browser. Netscape right. Mosaic. And, um, open source. And, and I had interviewed Richard Stallman and Brian Bellendorf and a number of people. And Mark was on that list. So there was a connection there. And I created Classroom 2.0 out of name. And, um, it was looking for a career change anyway for, for something else to do. And, uh, called Gina Bianchini and said, I thought she should hire me to represent Ming. What was interesting about that was I became a, a, the representative of a commercial company, but very much in the stat with the status of, of representing the company to the users and the users to the company. And that was a really great role. I think people felt good about it and it worked out well. And then, um, uh, you know, the other nice thing that that did was it led to my not feeling proprietary about Classroom 2.0, that uh, you know, my job was to evangelize the new platform. And, you know, quite candidly, even though I was in the open source world, it was really tempting to, to think that Classroom 2.0 was mine, the concept is mine, and really want to keep people there. And that, you know, the nice thing about being in the role of evangelizing the platform was it sort of taught me through actual practice the value of, you know, um, kind of giving the gift without expecting anything in return. And you know, I think Classroom 2.0 ended up doing better than it would have done if it had been proprietary or sort of if I had tried to keep everything, you know, in my own shop. Um, and so I was really grateful for that as an experience. Ning so, went through so, some planning. Steve, you just Go called ahead. up the founder of Ning and said, I think you should hire me. Is that, that what you said? Uh, it probably started with an email and, you know, ended up being a phone conversation. I, I I'm going to have to try that sometime. I'm going to have to call up, you know, Michael Dell and say, <laughs> I think you should hire me. Well, you know, Ning at the time wasn't... I mean, they were still very much in their starting stage, but they had, you know, they had seed money and they were, you know, wanting to do a lot of things. And, um, uh, you know, I had, I had a lot of practice calling people to ask them to come on the interview series, as you all know. So I, didn't, you know, that was a little bit comfortable for me. Um, and, um, and I really felt like Ming had something special going. And, and I don't know how much we want to drill down on that story. I'll give you the 30 second overview. But, you know, uh, I had been to a tech conferences, you know, had seen Miguel probably at some of these, and um, the what we were hearing a lot from the educational bloggers was you need to be blogging. They would say this to the teachers, and and it was clearly a very difficult hurdle for the regular educator to overcome, to go from you know 
not blogging to blogging, especially because, you know, the promise was it's going to be really great. You're going to you know, build these relationships uh, and it will probably take you nine to 12 months to actually start developing an audience. And that was just a long time. And what Classroom 2.0 did, or what Ning actually did, was it created an environment where you could very quickly get in, make connections, and get that kind of feedback. And it was different than blogging, but it was that sort of immediate sense of feedback. And I can remember, I tell the story a lot, Will Richardson came into Classroom 2.0 at the point at which we had 450 members, and he said, I don't know anybody in here. And I, you know, there was this moment of, you you know, the bright light of, Yes, that's exactly the whole idea. I mean, it was so clear at that moment that it was inviting people into the conversation who hadn't been in the conversation before. So, uh, you know, it's been very good for me because I think I tend to sort of live in that arena, which is the beginner arena. All what I do is around and kind of helping people start in part because I'm not an educator and there's, you know, some humility that's due there, uh, but also because I think that's my natural tendency is to work with the beginner. And so, uh, you know, I think what Classroom 2.0 is, it brought a lot of people into the conversation who hadn't been there before. And then because of the contract with Ning, it gave me, it gave him the freedom to leave and me not feel badly about it. So all kinds of people started other names on other kinds of topics. And, you know, it was sort of a, a wonderful moment watching all that happen. Yeah, I will say that uh, I don't know if Ning is necessarily the turning point, but early on in the uh, educational blogger world it was sort of an echo chamber it was the same 10 or 12 voices saying the same 10 or 12 messages uh and that that epiphany i don't know anybody there uh i wonder if he meant that as a good thing or as a bad thing but i you know you certainly sound like you say it as a good thing and i do too that we get new voices and new ideas into what had been sort of a a good old boys club for a while yeah and, and there's even a sort of a secondary piece to that which was uh, in order to get attention in blogging, you often had to be a little bit controversial or you had to be a little bit argumentative. And one of the really interesting shifts in, I mean, I remember months of time really coaching people to be more thoughtful. And, you know, I, I was never a teacher, but I, I did lead group tours for five years. It was my first job out of college. And, and there was a really interesting moment at which I realized I have to help people figure out how to get along in here. And so a lot of what I did was to say to people, hey, you know, I understand how you're feeling, but remember, this is a beginner and you have to (laughs) be thoughtful and careful. Um, And I think it built a character or a tenor or a, you know, sort of a way of being in the network that was really valuable. That that I will say I think was different than what was going on in the blogging community at the time. there, There was a fair amount of kind of punching back and forth. So what's the story on Classroom 2.0 now? Um, Are you still involved with it? Is it still going on? I know you have a new project that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Uh, Where does Classroom 2.0 stand? Well, it still goes. Now it just hit 60,000 members. I I think for a period of time it was sort of the go-to network. It's clearly not anymore. Um, A lot of graduate schools make it a stop on their uh, program for students, and a lot of people say you know, it's the sort of an early place to go and kind of see how that works and what's going on. You know, the, the network really exists for a discussion about the use of Web 2.0 in education, so it's fairly specific, but I think it serves as a good example of the kind of sustained conversation that takes place. I, I actually think that these kind of private networks are going to see a little bit of a resurgence. Um, I mean, I really like what Google Plus does in terms of allowing conversation maybe a little bit like Plurk. 
But, you know, Twitter is just great for information, but it's not great for sustained conversation. And I really like sort of the, the nature of the sustained conversation that takes place in Classroom 2.0 and other things. When I went to work for Illuminate, so Ning hit some financial difficulties. They cut a number of programs, including my contract. Um, I blogged about it. And this was, again, another great personal lesson. I don't need to focus on myself so much, but it was this sort of great moment of, okay, so the guy who came in to replace Gina at Ning, and you know, Gina was, I think, sort of asked to leave, um, uh, you know, he, um, he or somebody called me and said, you know, we're canceling your contract. So that's great. You know, I've got a 30-day notice. I said, no, we're, we're done today. And it was not well treated in the finish. And then they were experiencing stress, and I'm sure they had a lot going on. But, you know, I had, then again, I had sort of a personal choice to make, and the web helped me to, to sort of reshape my own thinking. So I just blogged a blog post, and I said, you know, it's been a really wonderful 18 months, and I really want to thank Ning for the opportunity to do something which I felt was really valuable. I felt like I was making a difference, and, you know, so thanks, Ning, for a great 18 months. And I didn't go into the negative at all. And, and, and you know, probably more of a story on me than anything else, but that, you know, that did take a fair amount of kind of shifting my own perspective. And uh, I think three or four hours later, I got a phone call from Rajiv Arora at Illuminate, and he said, so does that mean you're available? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, what, you know, what an amazing tool the web became for me in that moment. Uh, you know, and so, so Illuminate then hired me and worked for Illuminate uh, until the, they were acquired by Blackboard. And, and you know, that was just such a great experience for me to go through to see kind of the power of the network. Well, and uh, that's a that's a perfect uh, point to kind of enter into, uh, you know, what is going to be, I guess, the the new future. Uh, so, uh, and I'm talking about Teacher 2.0. So we have uh, Classroom 2.0, which uh, our show has been a longtime supporter of. It was a tip of the week very early on, and then uh, I've managed to actually. Uh, meet several teachers that have actually come on the show. So what Sean's uh, so just that, trying to say is we've been stealing content from there for about a year and a half now. <laughs> right. We're all just sharing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a great it's a great network, and uh, and it has been uh, all along. Uh, but now we have Teacher 2.0, so let's uh, let's kind of move on to that and let's talk about what the future holds. So uh, tell us a little bit about Teacher 2.0. Okay, so. Um, I'd love to. Uh, uh, Miguel asked, is asking a question in the network. He said, do you think the network works for everyone or select few like you and others? I don't think the network always works for all of us, and I certainly feel like those were sort of magic moments for me, but they did represent a significant change, and um, and I think there are more of those moments out there. I don't know if you're going to be able to see this, but I have a skin condition called vitiligo, so you can see the pigment. It's, I'm losing pigment in my skin and my face, and it's the Michael Jackson disorder. And I started a social network for people with vitiligo that's now sort of the world's largest social network for people with vitiligo. And I literally get an email a week from somebody who will say, you know, I was near suicidal or I was just so depressed in my life. And I found your network and found people to talk to. So, Miguel, I, I mean, you're not always going to have that, but I think this is representing kind of new opportunities. And if we're, if we're willing to seek them out, that they will come. And that's what Teacher 2.0 is about for me. Um, it's not about the use of social networking in the classroom. It's about helping the beginning teacher understand the power of the web for their own professional, personal and professional uh, opportunities. And again, I don't, you know, I'm not a teacher, and so I have to be very careful, but 
um, I, I offered this in Australia through the uh, uh, Victoria State Library, and uh, it sold out 100 spaces in two days. And we made it free. They sponsored it because we were, I really wanted it to be free for teachers. But there was sort of enough interest very quickly to fill up. And, you know, my sense is that this is something I can do. This is a way I can help, which is to help teachers understand the power of the web for themselves, for their own learning, and to kind of become the lead learner and to figure out how you think about a personal learning network and how you think about a, a um, personal web profile. You know, where, where do you kind of, how do you represent yourself online and how do we get past the sort of awkward feelings about how you put yourself online and how you contribute. And so th this to me is sort of an opportunity for me to do something I think I'm, I hope I'm good at where I, where I, where I make a difference for people by kind of explaining what's going on. And then ultimately for me, it's also about kind of serving in a leverage point, which is, uh, I think teachers are the crowd in Tahrir Square. Right. Or, I mean, you know, there's this uh, social media is providing for this opportunity to rethink and reshape who builds the narratives around institutions. And if the narrative in Egypt is around governance and the people are getting involved, well, the narrative around education, you know, part of what I think I can do is help educators become a part of these communities to be a part of that dialogue about what education is, what teaching and learning are. I'm going to look in the chat here so I see there's some, <laughs> there's some notes. But that's, so that's <laughs> 2.0 is. And, and again, I have no pretension or illusion that it's going to necessarily succeed. I mean, you know, it's very easy to start a Web 2.0 project. Uh, well, it's not always easy, but it's, you know, it's relatively easy to start. And you don't know if it's going to catch on. And, and part of what Clay Shirky has taught me, you know, and, and many others is that, you know, it, uh, failure is free on the web, theoretically. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's close enough to free that it's worth experimenting, right? So if my Vitaligo network hadn't gone, that would have been okay. It would have taught me something. I have started several networks that never really went anywhere. Bookdiscussions.com never went anywhere. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so Teacher 2.0 isn't guaranteed to go somewhere, but I, but I care enough about it that I will, you know, I want to stick with it because I really believe that it's something that I can do that will make a difference. So I'm getting the sense that you're a serial experimenter. Uh, you, you do something, you, you see how it goes, and then you do something else. You see, a, Do you wait to see if something succeeds, or are you just a scattergun trying many things at once? You know, I think there's a, 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 some kind of a balance, and my guess is that you're almost never really in balance. Uh, because I've seen projects start that don't succeed with a lot of effort that two years later in someone else's hands do succeed. It had nothing to do with the person who started and tried it, but had everything to do with timing. Um, you know, uh, Teacher 2.0, if it, if it keeps going and moving forward, will probably have a lot more to do with the early adopters than it will with me. And they're kind of getting engaged and liking it and spreading it. And so you recognize that to some degree, you have responsibility and you have to do everything you can, but also you're not really um, fully in charge. So you can't feel terribly bad when it doesn't work. Um, and this is, a, you know, there's an interesting parallel here with education, right? So, um, um, you know, I've had to kind of learn this as a parent for my own children, which is sort of a willingness to step back, let go, and, and, and allow things to happen, and then learn lessons from them, but but not be so controlling that, that nothing can go wrong. Um, and you learn, you know, you learn that as a parent in a variety of ways. And, and I have, we have four children, and, and um, 
the youngest is 13, the oldest is 22. So it's, uh, you know, we're, we've been through the teenage years for most, and um, it's been very helpful to me to, to sort of recognize that. Now, our older daughter, uh, our oldest daughter just graduated from college, and she does theater for kids with autism. And I've really encouraged her to do this. She's interviewed people. She has a website. Uh, it's, a, you know, sort of, it's a very much in the long tail, sort of a specialty that would, 10 years ago would have been very hard to make a living doing. And she's graduated from college and has, she's actually keeping three jobs going, but she actually has full-time work in the field that she loves. And to me, this is an, an amazing thing. You know, when I graduated from college, I sort of assumed that I would work for 15 or 20 years and things I didn't really care that much about to get some freedom to do what I wanted to do. Um, we have an 18-year-old daughter who's taking a year off between high school and college, and she's living in Nepal in very, you know, sketchy circumstances. sketchy, but, you know, very uh, very plain, poor circumstances. I mean, she washes her clothes on the floor of the bathroom. and um, uh, You know, I'm not sure I would have been as supportive of that, and the web has kind of taught me, you know, this value of allowing her to kind of follow her dream and her passion, and, and I've appreciated that lesson. I wondered. Uh, I wanted to follow up. You said that Teacher 2.0 was for beginner teachers. Where do the teachers go once they have become more comfortable with the whole 2.0 process? When they're no longer beginners, uh, what do you recommend they do from there? Well, so part of the interesting. I mean, I have some pieces here in Teacher 2.0, and, and you know, the first one is sort of thinking about your personal web presence and um, and and sort of the. Do you have a place that where people could go to find out about you, and do your do your students know about your interests and passions, and are you sort of are you bringing those things into your life in an active way? Um, you know that piece probably um, experienced teachers and beginning teachers are going to appreciate. But the you know the piece of building your personal learning network, of finding people that you're interested in following, understanding what RSS is, and kind of the tools that you would use for following people. So you're not going to different blogs every day. I and mean, for some of us, that seems like it's old hat. But for a lot of teachers, this is brand new. And when you show them iGoogle or you, you know, you show them a way to aggregate multiple blog feeds in a single place, they go crazy. They're so excited. Right. So, so the graduation from that, interestingly enough, is not to another institutionalized kind of package, but it's really you're building a personal learning network. So my guess is that the, you know, when you, when you sort of graduated from beginning teacher, you're no longer as dependent on somebody else providing a context or providing that structure as you are. You are now sort of empowered to do that yourself. And, and my guess is that's what's really happened. Um, you know, if you if you kind of if, if, we'll talk about Mighty Bell, I'm sure. But if you kind of look at the comments and everything that's going on there through this course I've set up, um, you see people kind of say, oh, okay, now I'm following these five people or these six people, and this is what I do, and this is how I get my information. And that is, that's different than our sort of institutionalized view that there would be a next step that somebody else would direct, it now becomes kind of self-directed. Does that come close to answering that question? I think so, sure. Well, uh, Steve, I want to jump in here because you already touched on it, and it is our next uh the discussion topic is uh, Mighty Bell and uh, also uh, I'll say the experiences. So uh, one, we want you to talk about the experiences and, and Mighty Bell uh, also want to know, you know, what the relationship is between Teacher 2.0 and Mighty Bell. Um, I 
signed up for the Teacher 2.0 Mighty Bell experience, I guess if that's the best way to describe it, and have been moving through that. So uh, let's start talking about that. You've touched on uh, providing sort of a, a roadmap for people to follow, and uh, Mighty Bell, I guess, is the tool that you're using to provide that. Is that right? Well, back up one step farther. What is Mighty Bell, and how does it relate to Teacher 2.0? I'll tell you the story. So Mighty Bell is Gina Bianchini's new project. So uh, Gina left Ning and um, you know, has sort of been working on this, I think, as an idea. And that, so the concept was, how do you create a place for people to go through a series of steps to either um, become involved in something or to learn about something? And um, you know, there is a story there, I don't know, I'm not sure I can remember exactly what it is, but I think Gina was sort of sitting on her living room floor cutting out all these magazine articles, you know, that told about different things like how to travel here, how to do this and that. And she thought, you know, there ought to be a way to go through these steps with social feedback with other people. So um, uh, Peter Slutsky, who works for Gina and who also worked for Nain, called me and said, hey, we'd like you to be an early example of a Mighty Bell. And I mean, this again, this is so interesting because, you know, I had to, I had to get past my kind of human nature issues. You know, what's in it for me and why would I do this? And, you know, I don't know what it was. And, you know, there are all these programs that start and I, you know, this is going to be one that's going to be worth spending time on. But, you know, we had just sort of scheduled the teacher 2.0 workshop in Australia and it had been such a success in terms of response that when I did the workshop, the all day workshop in Australia, I kind of, mapped it out in such a way that I could transfer into an online learning process, which is essentially how I'm using Mighty Bell. So I'm using Mighty Bell, uh, you know, it's a, it's a series of steps, and my thought was this is really great for an educational experience because you can place those steps in, people can talk about them with each other as they complete each step, give little assignments and things to do, and then when they complete it, you know, they've kind of completed a course. And I tried to calculate it so that it would last between six and eight hours if you did it independently. And I have no idea if that's how much time people are actually spending on it. Um, I know this isn't the only place to go to do this. I mean, there are other services that are arising that have kind of educationally stepped, experience-based, social pieces. But this was the one I knew about, and, and they'd reached out to me. And so I thought, well, you know, uh, can, can we put it online and see how it goes? Now, you can charge for a Mighty Bell, but I haven't put a charge down there. Um, but my goal was really to kind of see how people responded, get additional feedback. And ultimately, I'm not going to, I'm not letting out any huge secret, but my, uh, you know, my goal is to write a book. So, um, you know, uh, again, I'm thinking of ways that I can contribute to education that are respectful of the fact that I'm not an educator feels to me like this is maybe an arena in which I could do that, and Teacher 2.0 could be kind of a workbook, come explanation of, um, you know, sort of what's happening on the web and the value to educators. And so so putting it into Mighty Bell and holding the workshop are sort of a way of saying, okay, you know, if I can start generating feedback here, I'll really have a sense of what's working for people and what's not, and that can kind of be a part of the book. So that's my sort of ultimate goal is to, is to turn that into some form of book. Okay, so another experiment. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> you know, I, I have to jump in here and say what what really uh, struck me about kind of going through the ex the experience on uh, Mighty Bell is that this is a really neat format for uh, 
not only educators to kind of develop their PLN or learn all about really that arena, but it's also a, a great platform for teachers to actually kind of go in and maybe teach a subject in a different format to their own students. Yeah. I mean, have I've, you heard I've, anybody I've, talk about that? Well, that was sort of my goal. You'll notice when you get to the last step, I'll actually encourage you to start your own money bell. And, and because I really think that's kind of the fun of it. Um, you know, I've, I've um, you know, I've been sending dozens of messages to Peter and Gina about Mighty Bell. You know, two things occur to me right off the bat. One of which is, well, maybe three. One of which is there's no kind of badging or completion piece. You know, I created my own. I am a, I am teacher 2.0. You could put in, but I think there needs to be some kind of a completion piece that you could put on your website and you completed the course. Um, I also think that, uh, you'll notice that now, I think some 700 people have joined and started going through the Teach 2.0 Mighty Bell. And I have no idea if that's a lot or a little, but it's too many probably to feel like you're really connecting individually. So one of the recommendations I've made, and, and they, may be, they may already be doing this, is to have some way to kind of group yourself. So to go through that experience with some other people as part of a group. So you'd say, you know, I'm going to go through that teacher 2.0, I'm going to go through with my the teachers in my district or something so that you have that shared experience. It doesn't have to be everybody in the world, especially because those comments are going to get dated and there are going to be so many of them. You're not going to read through them. Um, and then the third piece is it kind of feels like there needs to be a next step, right? So you complete the Mighty Bell Teacher 2.0. You're with all these fellow travelers. You've had this experience. I'm not sure what that next step is, but it feels like there needs to be a next step. Um, and I'm, I've, I felt that deeply enough that I've been, you'll notice that in many steps I try and point you to the name network teacher 2.0 because I want people to have a place to go to really keep talking that's independent of those steps so that you're not constrained by the steps, you're not constrained by the time and the number of comments there. But like any other good name, you can go in and create discussions, create groups, talk about the things you want to talk about. You know, I am convinced that one of the great lessons of the web is that it's often more about your ability to help other people connect with each other than for them to connect with you. And so, you know, that's what I think Name does really well. And Mighty Bell, I'm not really sure it, it lets people connect with each other as much as it needs to. So we'll see. Okay. Well, and I wanted to just shift gears a little bit, um, as I'm sure you know, because when we asked you to be on, you went back and listened to the all uh, all the year and a half of episodes of the Taiwan Tech. Uh, so you will know that Sean and I both work uh, in education, and we're uh, big proponents of open source software. You are a bit of a pundit about that yourself. So uh, without going into your 90-minute session that you, you do, give us an abbreviated version of what you consider to be the current state of open source in education. Well, so this is fun because I actually came, the talk I gave at OSCON actually came from uh, a session I did, a panel discussion I led um, uh, with Miguel at um, TCEA last year. Um, and interestingly enough, my assessment of the state of open source in education is that it's uh, sputtering and almost about to run out of gas. And I'm trying to figure, you know, I'm trying to figure that out, which is, I mean, we're seeing an increased adoption of open source in sort of traditional ways where sort of back office computing and the like, but in terms of student experience or programming classes, um, you know, aside from Moodle and then some, you know, sort of notable installations of GIMP or uh, Audacity, you know, truth be told, 
even the proponents of open source have sort of lost their way a little in terms of, of the value set that drove that. And I think that's largely due to the web. You know, the, uh, a lot of the philosophy of open source has, has migrated to the web. A lot of the developers migrated to the web. And the web provides a lot of opportunity for uh, no license, relatively free or free access to computing power or programs. And, um, you know, so, so some of the appeal of open source, which was clearly financial, right? You know, this idea that you could, you could, um, use open source software without necessarily having to pay license fees. Um, that, that, you know, that got diminished a little. But there's also, I think, a deeper story, uh, and which I find kind of intriguing, uh, for me at least. And the deeper story for me is that, that if I really look at the people who've been promoting open source software and education, there's something that ties us together that I don't think was necessarily the software, but it was not just the software, but it was that the software represented a way for us to talk about rethinking the educational process. Right? So as we talked about open source software, a lot of that language was around collaboration and working together and figuring things out and openness. And, um, you know, I think for, if I look at my own motivation for for being a proponent of open source, which, you know, for five years now at, at ISTE and Q and other shows, you know, I lead the open source pavilion and speaker series. You know, if I'm really being honest about that, in part, it, it was, it has been for me about introducing a much a different view of teaching and learning. Um, and, and in my interview series on open source, you know, sort of intriguingly, none of those people really had their open source background related to their school, their formal schooling at all. So even though they accomplished many of them, you know, pretty amazing things in their Oh, a little bit of a glitch there. It was a way for me to kind of rethink education and think about apprenticeship and think about openness. Did I lose you? Yeah, we blipped out there for just a second. I think the uh, to paraphrase, I think what you were saying is that you're all a bunch of digital hippies, um, and then you can pick it up from there. <laughs> I, so I, you know, I, I uh, you know, if you look at all, there were some great initiatives. There was the Indiana Access Program. Um, there, we, you know, we ran a K-12 Open uh, Minds conference for three years. Uh, you know, we had some great stories of um, people like Randy Orwin who replaced uh, Office with Open Office in Bainbridge Island School District. We had the, uh, I was actually worked for COSIN as the open technologies chair. And we had, we had what looked on the surface like really visible successes and every single one of those programs died. And, um, you know, so here I am, you know, when I talk to an open source crowd, you can tell this sort of that fever, that excitement, we need to really change things with open source. And part of what I think I've learned is that fever and excitement are, are some about the software. Right. But there's also some about kind of rethinking education within the context of that openness. And so, um, what I, what I hope doesn't happen is that with the petering out of open source, that that commitment to kind of rethinking and reshaping education around openness, uh, I hope it doesn't go away. I think open educational resources is a very hot topic. There's a conference here in Park City, uh, with David Wiley coming up in, in October. Um, you know, that's still, you know, a very active topic. Um, and I think there are a lot of ways in which we can be th re rethinking education within the, the framework of openness and, and the value set of open source software. But, um, 
truth be told, it's very hard for most people to distinguish between what's a Web 2.0 program and open source, and they just don't get it. And the likelihood is that we probably we're probably not going to be talking about open source software right. in schools. So, uh, if I'm understanding what you're saying, you think that the concept of freeness, no costness, has overshadowed the concept of freedom and openness. Well, I think there were probably sort of two large major motivations for open source. One was lack of licensing costs, which doesn't mean it's free to install or implement or maintain. But, you know, that there was this perception that you, you're able to you know, use Moodle when you would have to pay for Blackboard, but you can actually get the Moodle license free. So I think that was part of the driving force. I think the other part of the driving force was philosophical, sort of Richard Stallman kind of doing good, being a Boy Scout, helping others. And if I look sort of candidly at my motivation in open source, it was a combination of the both. But in, but increasingly, the cost factor is really not on the table for most people as a discussion because they can use Google Apps for schools. They've got a variety of other tools that are all now basically for free, and it's they're happening in the cloud, which makes sense anyway. So then there's this still the philosophical piece, and that's where you know, I think we need to make sure we don't lose steam, which is... Um, Let's make sure we're still talking about the philosophical piece. Yeah, this show is called the Tightwad Tech. We're we are focused on that which is cheap and and free, but we are also advocates of that which is open. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, when push comes to shove, uh, what we often talk about is the fact that it doesn't cost anything. And the openness is like an icing on the cake. Yes, it's open, and we're glad that it's open. But in the case of Google Apps, which, is, which isn't open, well, we don't really care all that much. It's free. Well, but I think we should care. And this is where it gets very interesting, which is um, uh, we're in a place right now where it's very easy to not see the consequences of depending on these companies and allowing them you know, sort of incredible access to who we are personally in our lives. And I'm not sure we're going to feel that way forever. And, um, you know, it's very easy in a bubble to feel like it will go on forever. You know, in the housing bubble, if you said it wasn't going to go on, and everybody said, you're crazy, right? So we're in this bubble where there is all of this free stuff. Well, Ning just got, you know, Ning was free. Then Ning became non-free. Ning just got bought by Glam, or they merged together. And the first thing Mark Andreessen said was, uh, now Glam has access to an additional 40 million people. And my, you know, my thought was, well, wait, how does Glam have access to the members in my name? Really? Tell me, I mean, what's that mean? Are you going to start advertising directly to my Ning members? Because I actually haven't given you permission to do that. But at some point, you know, Ning, Ning you know, probably didn't recoup half of their initial investment, and they are you know, going to be responsible financially. And so, you know, Ning goes from free to not free to now, who knows what, you know, what the relationship is going to be with the customer. You know, Google is a public company. They have a you know, legal responsibility to maximize shareholder resources. You know, if we go into a really concerted second recession or depression, you know, we don't have any guarantee that they're going to treat us or our data the way that we want them to. And we can make the argument, and hopefully it's true, that there will be pressure and publicity and the like around that. But the fact of the matter is, when Miguel puts Moodle on a server, he knows exactly what's going to happen to that data and who owns it and how to protect it. And when we put it in the cloud with a company that's offering it for free, we don't know. And, you know, I don't want to sound like a, I'm raining on anybody's parade, 
but we need to care about this. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're at some point we're going to have to care again, and we need to make sure that we're thinking about these things deeply. I agree with that. Uh, I've also always been an advocate of keeping my data on my servers, if at all possible. Uh, but sometimes you have to, uh, you know, you have to drink the Kool-Aid just a little bit because that's what's the best thing for your stakeholders right now. Right, and the unfortunate part about that is the reference to drinking the Kool-Aid was obviously a suicide pact, right? right. So, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I mean, I don't want to go too deep here, and I don't want to get us off on a, you know, too much of a negative because I'm not even sure how I feel. I mean, we're either in a, a place of major change, right, or we're thinking that there's more change that's actually taken place, and ultimately financial interest will kick in. And, you know, Facebook, it's, it's hard to look at Google. I mean, Google tends to occupy a very unique space, right? But face, you start talking about Facebook and how Facebook treats its users and privacy, and you know, we probably have a little bit more of a hint as to what the dangers are. Right. I think it's just important to keep in mind that if you're not buying a product, you're the product being sold. And as long as you understand that going in, you can act in, uh, accordingly. Right. And uh, truthfully, do most teachers or students have any idea that's taking place? Probably not. No. You know, and there's only a, there's a limited amount we can keep track of, you know, and everybody has their role. I mean, Richard Stallman seems like kind of a fanatic, even in the open source world. But the truth is Richard plays a very good role. And in the same way that Gary Steger plays a really important role, which is to kind of keep us remembering that there are core deep issues and, and sometimes if you ignore them, they come back to bite you. Yeah, uh, Miguel in the chat room says, do 13-year-olds understand what I just said? The answer is no. Hopefully, though, they have people like myself who are helping to educate them. I mean, we've, uh, I have tried in my district when we've uh, uh, moved to Google Apps to make people understand that is the deal we're making. We are giving of our... Uh, selves in return for a service so choose carefully what you give and you know for the most part it's history reports on you know Niels Bohr so you know it's, it's fairly innocuous stuff I, I mean I have an Android phone I have an Android tablet I have Gmail I use Google Docs the convenience factor is so high incredibly high I mean if I uh, now with Google Plus even higher you know, that if I put an, uh, a phone number in, it appears on all of my devices. If I lose my phone, I can go in and get another one and immediately have all of my data. And so there is a degree to which the convenience right now for us is, is way outshadowing the dangers. Right. But history would tell us that that will not always be the case. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any answers. It's it's interesting. Um, I, I don't know what things are like in, in Utah where you live, but uh, in Texas where we live and work, uh, budgets are being cut on the average of about 10% per year over the next several years. Well, it, 10% can only go so far, and there's, there's no percentages to take 10 out of. Uh, so we're forced to make these decisions that later may bite us, and we recognize that. You know, it's, it's like riding on the scorpion's back. You know, at some point, you know you're going to pay for it, but you have to do what you have to do. Yeah, and, and one possible way to look at this is that the web is really helping us to see the value in social, right? And so we, there are still plenty of people who are seeing that value, seeing the benefit of it, and then they are setting up, you know, um, 
uh, walled garden environments with Moodle or with WordPress or with other programs to allow their students to have those experiences, but without compromising either data or privacy or whatever it is. So arguably, it's just sort of, you know, arguably we, we're not in a downward all, all down. Maybe we're just in kind of a, uh, a wave here where we sort of gravitated toward the free. And then as, as we increasingly recognize the value, you know, we'll, we'll balance that out. Although it's really hard to, to, to balance voluntarily. <laughs> Mixing metaphors. <laughs> yes, the, uh, something more positive than that. Right. The peanut gallery there likes to point out every time I say something incorrect, I challenge them to do the same. I would say that, except, uh, uh, Miguel does his own podcast all the time, so I can't really challenge him to do what he's already doing. But anyway, um, <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to uh, to bring up? Any any uh, point that you wanted to make sure we didn't overlook? Uh, we, we're pretty much at the end of our notes, and uh, and we we don't want to take up your whole night. But at the same time, this is your pulpit, and we want to let you preach as much as you want to. No, I mean I, we you know that we kind of ended on the, on the negative there, but so my overall assessment of this moment historically is that it's a it's a really important and exciting period of time. Um, and especially if we think about uh, sort of the, the new narratives around teaching and learning and who builds those narratives and has an opportunity to build them, th- this is a great moment to, to not only sort of reshape our thinking about education, but to reshape our thinking about who helps reshape education. And, in, and I'm hopeful that you know, part of the role I'm playing is to facilitate those conversations, like the Future of Education interview series and Classroom 2.0 and Teacher 2.0, um, that these are ways of helping uh, allow for the dialogue to take place. Um, and it's not going to be, I mean, democracy in Egypt isn't easy or any of these, you know, countries that are struggling. Uh, you know, democracy is not easy and uh, uh, collaborative narrative building is not easy. But it's a, it's a really valuable conversation. It's one of the great conversations historically. And it's a conversation that it's very exciting to think about the fact that we can all participate in it. And, and I'm really excited about that, and I think it's an, an amazing period of time, and my hope is um, that the things that, that uh, I'm doing and you're doing and Miguel's doing and everybody else is doing, that these are all part of a larger story of uh, trying to figure out um, you know, how to reshape our institutions in a world in which we all have much more voice. I, I did want to, I don't know, point something out or ask a question. I'm not sure which it will end up being. Uh, but You're going to correct me? Correct me. <laughs> no, it's uh, when given the choice to create your own um, mark on the Internet there, Classroom 2.0, Mighty Bell, you chose free over open. Yes. Can, do you oh, have a, a, an explanation or a reason or a thought process behind that? Yeah, because I could not figure out Drupal well enough to do it. Was, my choice wasn't between free and open. My choice was between uh, doable and not doable. And um, where I where there's an open source program that I can learn well enough to be creative, uh, I'm not a deep programmer. But where I tend to do well is if, I, if a program is, is built well enough that I can then expand uh, the concepts of how to use it, that's where I tend to do well. So for me, it wasn't a case of, I mean, I really wanted to use Drupal, but I couldn't learn it well enough to do what I could do in Ning in half an hour. And so, yeah, I made that trade-off, right? But I am paying for it. I mean, I'm, you know, it's not, I mean, I, you know, I am a, um, I am now in a relationship with Ning where I actually pay for the services and, you know, 
we can, we can quibble about that all we want. But if I could have done it in an open source program, I would have. Um, Drupal, by uh, the way, is the Microsoft access of the web world. It's very powerful, but nobody knows how to use it. Well, I was a great access user. In fact, <laughs> I was such a powerful access user that I actually did access against SQL Server on the back end. And, you know, my big gripe about that is we don't have a good entry-level relational database program. Why don't we? You know, why? In Paradox, remember Paradox? I mean, Paradox was this great relational database program that you could actually learn in a couple of days well enough to do amazing things. Now, then you had Access, and Access kind of constrained you because everybody had to have a license, or you had to figure out some way to get access to it. It was never played well with the web. But, but you know, that's another case where there isn't a good tool that fits my personal work style, you know, where I, it's simple enough that I can learn it and then I can really extend it. Um, and that's sort of how I felt about, um, you know, about Drupal and uh, Mambo and Joomla, which is I could never get to a level of knowledge where I could pump things out and experiment and play. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably end up thinking about that all night and feeling guilty, but th okay. that was the trouble. Well, let's say you are, I, I have just endowed you with omnipotence and you can create whatever you want. What would that, what would the, be the one tool that you create? What would that be? Uh, you mean social media related or just anything? Just, you know, in terms of, of what you see the greatest need is in, uh, in the course, in the context of, of education and such. No, I, I actually think that you've led that conversation the right way. Um, so I've been involved with Learn Central, which was a Drupal-based uh, project as a social network for educators through Illuminate. I didn't do the programming, so I wasn't involved in that aspect. And it, you know, kind of candidly, it suffered from the fact that it was Drupal and um, that the programmers didn't have a lot of social media background. But if I could do anything, it would be to build um, that kind of open source uh, program for that, that would duplicate what Ning does so that we weren't dependent on commercial companies. I mean, if, you know, the Department of Ed has been looking at communities of practice and, and they've been awarding grants for a variety of things. And, um, and I think they've been making two mistakes. One is they're, they're awarding grants to people to start new communities. And I keep telling them, what I really think you need to do is you need to support the existing ecosystem. Don't be the solution. Create the environment for people to solve problems. You know, let teachers gather in ways that are useful and productive to them. Don't kind of dictate how they need to, to be gathering together. So that would be one piece. But the second piece would be, it would be really nice to have a tool that was free and that was protected that could do these things, right? Because Ning gets sold the glam. I mean, you know, in a year, Classroom 2.0 could have to close down. So it's not it's not protected. So we know that this tool of connecting teachers through social media technologies or social networking technologies is really, really valuable. So I don't think we need to be building new networks for teachers, but if we could build the environment and the tools for teachers to do this, to make it easy to create networks like Ning, but without having to go through Ning. Think of all the teachers who can't afford Ning or can't get the approval for Ning. That, that would be my wish, is to create that kind of a tool for, um, you know, that, that was sort of publicly available. Use government funds and then require that because it's government funds, it has to be open source. You know, for sure that would be number one. Number two would be a nice relational database program. <laughs> You're always the geek at heart, aren't you? I know. I love relational databases. That's awesome. Uh, Sean, any other questions before we let Steve get on with his night? No, I think that uh, that was a perfect way to end right there. Uh, kind of a, a look forward as to uh, hopefully maybe something we'll see someday. 
Well, you've been an excellent guest, Stephen. We thank you for your time and your participation, and uh, uh, maybe you can come back sometime when you've when you've invented that perfect thing and, and let us all know about it. <laughs> that won't be me. I'll support. <laughs> Right. Well, we'll we'll keep cheering you, uh, cheering you on all along the way. And I don't know if you have heard us in the past, but uh, we have been doing just that. So uh, it, it's a special pleasure to finally have you on the show. It's really thoughtful of you having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I first was introduced to you, Steve, back in the uh, on the old K twelve OSN mailing list when you were talking about setting up the first open source pavilion, and uh, I've sort of tracked your progress there um, silently and from afar. I'm stalking you, essentially. Uh. <laughs> We're all stalking each other. My 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 daughters, you know, on Facebook, and like they all say something about a post they put up. That's so sick. What are you stalking me? Like <laughs> he posted something publicly. I'd be a bad parent if I didn't know what you were saying. That's a very good point. All right, Steve. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we'll say good night to you. Thank you so much. Oh, that was awesome. Absolutely. Steve is a, an intelligent man. He, he's one of those men who are intelligent in a, a number of different arenas, and I always enjoy talking to those people. Uh, it's been a great, uh, great time with him. Um, Sean, any other comments before we move on to our tips of the week? No, uh, just just that. It's uh, it was exciting to finally uh, speak with him and have him on the show. And uh, I encourage everybody out there to, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with Classroom uh, 2.0, which we talked about several times on the show uh, and now teacher 2.0 and uh, his mighty bell experience one will have links to all of that stuff uh, in the show notes so uh, certainly go check it out uh, if you if it's maybe something that doesn't interest you directly just by virtue of what it is that you do in education uh, at, at least pass that information along because uh, there's a lot of teachers out there that maybe haven't been ex uh, exposed to that that uh, could benefit greatly from uh, just digging in and taking advantage of the tools that uh, Steve's made available all right and so with that I'll just jump into my tech tip of the week and this one is uh, an interesting one and um, of, of course, in the conversation of all this open source goodness and, and, and uh, Linuxy and all that sort of stuff, this one only works on Windows Vista and Windows 7. Uh, it's called Dictation Pro, and it's a free speech recognition software. Uh, this is uh, an area that is growing pretty dramatically. Of course, uh, for years there was uh, uh, Dragon Dictation and, and Naturally Speaking, and that was about it. And recently, Google has put their weight into it on the Android platform. And, and so it's, it's an interesting resurgence of not only these new tools, but they're free tools. And so this was called Dictation Pro. It's a version 0 0.9 beta. Uh, so my assumption is that when it's no longer beta, they're probably going to start charging for it. But uh, from what I hear, it's really good. Um, and that's really all I could say about it. I haven't tried it myself, but uh, it has a, a supposedly a very high voice recognition accuracy uh, and very good with different accents and, and dialects and things of that nature. And uh, it learns, as most of these systems do, as you use it. So check it out. And uh, that's from deskshare.com, but the link will be on our website. All right. Well, I'll uh, jump in with the teacher tip of the week, and that is eduplace, E-D-U place.com <laughs> and uh, this is kind of uh, I referenced last week that this is I have sort of a, a series of uh, kind of online teacher resource sites uh, that I just kind of dug up a, a handful of them all at the same time uh, this is a uh, 
it's teacher resource K through six. And it's brought to you by, uh, I'm, I'm not even quite sure how to say this, uh, this company's name, Houghton, Houghton Mifflin. Houghton Mifflin. Houghton Mifflin. Okay. Yeah. I've, you know, it's one of those things, right? You've seen that name for years. I mean, I saw that name on textbooks when I was a kid in school, but, uh, uh anyway, uh, so obviously, uh, this is a textbook publisher, and uh, what this site does is it's kind of a companion to the textbook. So you can actually go on there, and you can find uh, textbook support materials. And these are uh, these are broken down by state, so you can actually go and right there on the front page of the site, it gives you a state breakdown. So you can go to the state, and then you're going to get a listing of the textbooks that are used within your state, and you get support materials that go along with those textbooks. So uh, a great site to just go to uh, once you've chosen your state, then you kind of choose uh you know the discipline so mathematics science social studies whatever and uh and it, they'll have free resources for you to uh to download and uh use uh you know in your instruction so uh, i'll just uh, leave it at that and say uh, definitely check it out it's eduplace.com Okay. And as always, you can find out uh, the links to that and, and more information about these two goobers who are, are talking to you now at our website at elementop.com. Uh, you can find us also on Twitter, twitter.com slash elementop, facebook.com slash elementop. Uh, but uh, we re- really recommend that you go to our website, join the uh, forums there, join the communities, and uh, make your voice heard. Also, every uh, week we record this live, this show, 9 p.m. Central Time. And so if you want to be part of our live show and in the chat room and heckle us, as, as you've seen here tonight, you can do that. And <laughs> we, we actually like that. We like to uh, uh, complain about it, but it also it's, uh, it's always better when there's a live element and uh, people to, to call me on it when I uh, mix metaphors. So uh, join sure. us there. Well, and not only that, but I mean, you know, uh, interject a question in there. You know, if you have a question for the, the guest or even for us uh, while the show is going, uh, interact with us and, uh, you know, you can kind of shoehorn your way into the show. All right. So I think that's going to wrap this up. Sean, you have anything to add to the to the show? I think uh, this is another one of a long string of great shows. <laughs> this is a long show. That was a long interview. So uh, yes. it's time for us to wrap this up. And so in that vein, this is Mark signing off. And Sean signing off. <laughs> <laughs>